You've probably heard of the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, or CFTC, and you might know that this independent U.S. government agency regulates the U.S. derivatives markets, which includes futures, swaps, and certain kinds of options. But you might not know about the CFTC's regulatory and enforcement powers and how it fits into the broader regulatory framework. Jones Day partner and former CFTC Market Participants Division Director Josh Sterling is here to talk about all that. He'll also discuss the CFTC's agenda, including a look at how the Commission is prioritizing climate change concerns, how it monitors technological innovations, and what the CFTC might expect from the new Biden administration. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks. Josh Sterling has 20 years of experience in the derivatives and securities markets, both as lead counsel to major companies and as a senior federal financial regulator. Josh represents clients that are active in the derivatives markets with matters before the U.S. Commodities Futures Trading Commission, CFTC, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, and various self-regulatory organizations. Prior to joining Jones Day, Josh was director of the CFTC's Market Participants Division, which regulates more than 3,300 banks, intermediaries, and asset managers registered with the agency to trade derivatives in the U.S. markets. Hey, Josh, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Dave. Now, you're new to the firm. You came over recently, earlier this year, from the Commodities Future Trading Commission, CFTC, which is what we're going to talk about today. And you had a prominent role there. You were director of the Markets Participant Division of the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Now, how does one come to be the director of Markets Participant Division of the U.S. Commodity Trading Future Commission? How did you end up in that role? Sure. Well, well thanks for that. Well, I'll tell you, Dave, honestly... To start, it, it helps to have a very good friend who was appointed uh, chairman of the CFTC by the president. So that didn't hurt. But uh, all kidding aside, um, uh, although I did know Heath Tarber, still do quite well as a dear friend. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I had had in the 10 years or so running up to getting the position, focused my law practice uh, quite a lot on the CFTC and a lot of issues in the derivatives markets that came up during the 2008 financial crisis. That turned into the financial reform we refer to as Dodd-Frank here in the United States in 2010. Sure. And all the work between 2010 and when I got appointed in the summer of 2019 to uh, join Team Tarbert, if you will, at the CFTC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about CFTC. Again, you're in a, a relatively rare position, having been there in a prominent role, and now you're back in private practice. But give us an overview. I think anyone listening here knows what the CFTC does broadly. But let's talk a minute briefly about how it regulates, what institutions it oversees, its regulatory and enforcement authorities. I guess, big picture, tell us what the CFTC is doing. Sure. We like to say, and it was my chairman who coined the term, the CFTC is the most important regulator you've never heard of. It's a small agency compared to, say, the Treasury Department or the SEC or something, but we have a really large mandate there we did. The the global size of the derivatives markets and the global nature of it is really staggering. If you measure it just by the notional size of some of the contracts, it's over 600 trillion dollars. If you you look at just counterparty risk, it's still in the trillions of dollars that far exceed the GDP of most, if not all countries. So I was going to say the U.S. economy is what, a $20 trillion economy or something? I'm probably wrong on that, but it certainly isn't 600 trillion, right? No, no. And, and, you know, that's the notional value of the contracts, which is obviously the largest way to measure it. So even if you sort of look at 
risk adjusted or counterparty exposure, it's still trillions and trillions of dollars. So it is the largest financial market in the world and amongst G20 countries anyway, probably all countries. We we're the only agency that had sole and exclusive jurisdiction over the derivatives markets alone. Okay. So we had a big mandate in a small agency, but we were primed to the task. And so the way I look at it is we, we regulate, I guess I need to stop saying we, don't I, in, uh, in, in a few ways. One, we look at the markets themselves. How is the trading going? Is the trading normal or mm -hmm. are there market squeezes, disruptions, manipulations, and scams in the market? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of market oversight. And there's a whole division for that. Right. My friend Dorothy DeWitt runs. And okay. then you sort of have the pipes. You do a trade in the market. It has to go and be cleared. Mm -hmm. And part of clearing is managing risk. And we have clearing houses. So we had a division of clearing and risk run by my good friend Clark Hutchison. Then we have all the people in the markets doing the trades that have to have the risk transmitted and spread out through the clearing system. And those are the market participants. That was the division that I was running, and my friend Amanda O'Lear now is running as acting director. Okay. And then we have our top cops for when anybody, a clearinghouse, a market, or a market participant is suspected of violating the federal laws and regulations we had in place. And that's when the division of enforcement would get involved. Okay. And we do uh, investigations and other work on that front. Okay. This is broader than I expected even. I mean, you describe the different divisions and so forth. I knew the CFTC, relatively speaking, wasn't a huge regulatory body, but I didn't know that it was that diverse and had that much going on in terms of areas of focus or emphasis. Mm -hmm. Did this evolve or is that how it was set up back when it was set up in the 70s or whatever it was? Yeah, absolutely. So there has been an evolution in how the agency works. And I think its mandate has grown over time. And so originally, as the name suggests, F being futures, Commodity Futures Trading Commission, there were only regulated futures and options on futures markets. Everything else that would have been over-the-counter swaps markets, if you will, yeah. were not regulated. And there were choices made even in the 1990s not to regulate that. That change was Dodd-Frank. And so I think that the uh. The size of the markets and the number of market participants that get regulated and even the types of markets that there are, we now have swap execution facilities, which are just for swaps. And, and so there has been an evolution of that. And we even underwent a reorganization of the agency again in November. We created a whole new division, the division of data, among other things. And so there's always change to keep up with the times. And I'll give you one example in terms of priorities for the agency. We have an office there called Lab CFTC, okay. which is set up to help foster responsible innovation in financial markets in areas including financial technology, mm -hmm. cryptocurrency, and blockchain and so forth. So right, right. trying to be a very quick to respond regulator and move with innovations in the market. We are going to talk more about that later. And I'm always stunned at how quickly regulators can respond sometimes with new developments or innovative products or new services and so forth. It's a wonder because, you know, the private sector can move along pretty quickly, but I've noticed a lot of government agencies do a pretty good job of keeping up. It's a fascinating area, period, I think, the securities and derivatives markets and an equally fascinating part of the law. What got you here? Yeah, no, great question. It's funny. I was an English and philosophy major in college, but, mm. uh, I'd always known I wanted to be a lawyer. My, my grandfather was the chief bailiff of the city court system. And then as a kid, 
I watched LA Law, and those people just seemed to have a lot of fun. Uh, and, and <laughs> I'm not joking. Like, really, that was it. <laughs> so, sure. sure. So, Susan um, Day and Corey Burnson and oh, I yeah. Oh, yeah. Arnie Cass. Becker, Esquire. So, so beyond that, you know, I'd always had an interest in the law and, and because of those experiences with my grandfather. And as I got into practicing law, it was really by happy accident. One of the first projects ever I did as a summer associate was trying to write rules and bylaws for a trying to remember a, an online platform, and this was the year 2000, for trading electricity bandwidth contracts. And so this wasn't a memo on discovery or an indenture or an M&A document. And I said, well, what is this? What, what are these financial markets? And yeah. took a seminar in derivatives in law school and always found it interesting. So I sort of tended towards the financial markets from the get-go. You know, some happy accidents along the way of knowing I want to be a lawyer. It's become extraordinarily involved, I think, since. You said you kind of got your feet wet in all this back in 2000, either still in law school or right out. And we look at how the global financial and derivatives markets have expanded since then. It truly is a global marketplace. And now you've got online trading to a degree you couldn't imagine back in 2000. Just this has exploded right in front of you, really. Yeah, no, absolutely. The velocity of change has really picked up. The availability of information and data that can be used as a source of trading, and then the information that trading itself generates, it's almost like a virtuous circle, and it just leads to more evolution and growth, and I think depth and health in the derivatives markets. And so I think that if you're a fan of markets, you, you at least in my case, you're naturally drawn to trying to understand how they're regulated, and then find ways to be helpful to clients that are in those markets, whether it's enforcement actions, let's hope not, helping them with regulatory change and advocacy, or helping them structure transactions. So I think there's just a lot to do to be helpful. It certainly seems so. Well, since you brought it up, let's talk about regulators. There's an extensive, to say the least, regulatory framework, both here in the United States and globally, and different organizations monitor activities in the financial institutions. Where does the CFTC fit in that arrangement? Where does it play? How does it work with the other regulators and enforcement agencies? Yeah, absolutely. Domestically, the CFTC has a seat at the big table. That's the FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council. That is group headed by Treasury Secretary in which all the federal financial regulators participate and they share ideas. They publish an annual report. Mm -hmm. It's meant to sort of be there to keep an overall top down as well as bottom up view of what's happening in different pockets of the market. So we participate like that with the other regulators in the United States. And then there are events that require us to work together. Like we saw in the money markets last spring, we sort of had to be in dialogue with the Treasury Department mm -hmm. and occasionally the Fed on things in the money markets. And then there are times when Congress tells you that you got to collaborate. So we collaborated very closely with the SEC in some rulemaking initiatives and in responding to some aspects of the, the crisis in the markets back then. Internationally, I think the CFTC's Office of International Affairs does an excellent job keeping the agency involved as sort of an advocate for the U.S. and the U.S.'s own regulation of its own markets. Mm -hmm. Other regulators around the world, particularly in Europe, take an interest in our markets because they're so big and so well-functioning, which I think is an outgrowth of a healthy society. And they take an interest in those activities. They want to understand them. Sometimes they want to try and regulate them. So we participate in forums like IOSCO, which is mm -hmm. the international organization for similar regulators around the world to participate in to sort of harmonize global standards. 
and the FSB as well. And so we participate as an agency actively in those international dialogues. And then finally, the CFTC has information sharing agreements or memorandum of understanding with regulators around the world to make sure that we can share information with them on a fair and transparent basis for things within our respective ambits. Now, you've swerved into my next question because we do a lot of these podcasts and we talk to people in the cyber security practice and investigations and white collar defense practice and so forth. And there seems to be this trend of collaboration, both in terms of intra government stuff here in the United States, the federal and state levels, as well as cross border. I think if there's a theme that kind of revolves around these sorts of conversations, I think there's a lot more collaboration and cooperation than there probably was even 10 or 15 years ago. Would you say that's true with the CFTC? Is there a lot of sharing of information in terms of an investigation or audit kind of things? Does that go on? No, absolutely. You're right. It definitely has picked up. There is value in, in collaboration particularly when the goal is to sort of get the right result, in some cases, especially so, right perceived wrongs. And by that, I mean enforcement. So the CFTC has robust enforcement powers in the markets. You don't have to be registered with the CFTC to be subject to an enforcement action by the CFTC. All you need to do is trade in the markets. And so the exchanges that are registered with and regulated by the CFTC have their own enforcement powers. They will refer or involve the CFTC with his violations of federal law and misconduct in their markets. And then there can be criminal violations of the federal commodity futures trading laws as well. And so there's often collaboration with the Department of Justice. In fact, there is a task force or working group for commodities fraud that involved DOJ and the CFTC working closely together. And we have many folks here, as you know, Dave, from the DOJ who have experience or knowledge of how those parallel proceedings work. I would even say, and this is particularly relevant these days, the commodities laws give state attorneys general the ability to bring actions, including in concert with the CFTC. In just last year, former director Jane McDonald, a very, very good friend of mine and colleague, did bring through the agency an enforcement action with, I believe, 30 other state AGs. So that was pretty momentous for the agency. Hmm. What I would say is that enforcement really permeates a lot of what federal agencies do, particularly at the CFTC. I personally reviewed every action that was going to be recommended to the commission to take enforcement against a company that was registered with the CFTC. And I had 3,310 firms registered with the CFTC that were within my ambit. So if we had an action Mm-hmm. contemplated by enforcement against one of those 3,300 firms, I saw the charging documents and I would comment on or offer views on that. When we went out and did our exams or learned of exam results and we had evidence of potential violation of law or regulated entity made a report to us indicating the laws had not been followed, we always heard it because we can't fix the mistake or the breaking of the law. We can work with a firm that wants to remediate it But if you violate the law, there's a consequence. And so we contributed highest ever percentage in my tenure of cases to the enforcement docket as to before. And indeed, I I implemented the first ever formal enforcement referral program between what we call policymaking division and the division of enforcement in the agency. That led to some significant results against firms. Interesting, interesting. You mentioned state attorneys general 
a minute ago. And mm-hmm. it, it kind of all comes together around here. This is a little bit of inside baseball for the people listening, but Jones State just launched a state attorney's general practice. We're actually doing a standalone video on financial markets and what state attorneys general are looking at. I guess this would cover banks, insurance companies, brokerages, and so forth, and certainly anybody involved in derivatives. So it's interesting you brought that up. I just didn't know they were that active, that involved, and had that kind of authority at the state level, but they clearly do, right? They definitely do. The volume and seriousness of, of enforcement actions, particularly against financial services companies, will only pick up in this new administration. I don't really think it waned so much prior four years, but I think in the next 48 years, it will only only grow. Sure. You mentioned the new administration. I know we're only a couple months in, but what do you see happening here? Do you see big changes from the prior four years, or is it going to stay the course, or what do you anticipate? Absolutely, Dave. There will be some marked changes in priorities, which is natural and completely the prerogative of any new administration, any new president. Obviously, CPC is part of the executive, although it's an independent agency, mm-hmm. the president makes appointments and can absolutely set the tone and expectation. In that regard, when we do have a new chair appointed, and I've been looking religiously for that to happen, at least as of the time of this recording had not happened, priorities will obviously be around enforcement, which we've talked about, continued strong enforcement of the laws on the books. Mm-hmm. I think there will also be a significant emphasis on climate risk and and things like the Green New Deal. I think Mm -hmm. that's true generally, one. I think, two, it's certainly true early days looking at what the SEC is doing with their chairman, Mr. Gensler, a former CTC chair. And then I say it for a third reason, which is that in last September, an advisory committee of the CFTC, one made up of market participants, put out sponsored by the CFTC, a report on managing climate risk in the financial system. And I believe that was the first white paper a federal agency had done on climate risk in the financial system. And it is a roadmap, not just for the CFTC, but for all financial regulators to sort of take a look at lending activities, financing activities, derivatives market activities, and the way that they have to respond to and address not only weather events, but also changes in the the legal and regulatory landscape that I think are going to drive changes in, frankly, the sources of energy for our real economy. So I think the CFTC will have a seat at the table because it essentially, although it was an advisory committee, asked for one by issuing that report. So I would expect that to be top of mind for the regulators, not only in rulemaking, but also enforcement. Interesting. You know, and again, you know, everything kind of comes back together here. And I think, correct, CFTC was, if not first, right there, because I remember we did a publication, a white paper or a commentary or something, when that happened. And it was certainly innovative at the time. But we've talked since about the New York Department of Financial Services. I've talked with Jay Tamby about what the SEC is doing. So many of these regulatory and enforcement agencies are taking climate change so seriously in terms of risk management and so forth, if nothing else. If you'll forgive my informality, this isn't feel-good tree-hugging stuff. They're worried about the underlying risk in the portfolios and the policies you're underwriting and the loans you're making and so forth. The rubber hits the road in this stuff. These are real issues and they're affecting potentially a balance sheet, right? Yes, absolutely. There will be efforts not only to have firms look at their own activities, 
mm-hmm. but to sort of in a really meaningful way assess real costs to them of continuing to support the activities of others that are believed to contribute to climate change. So there's always talk in this arena about stranded assets, which would mean coal, oil, gas, stuff left in the ground, if you will. Mm-hmm. And what is the right risk haircut to apply on a loan portfolio that is skewed towards or includes loans to those kinds of extractive companies? That's just one example. You could say the same thing for the derivatives book where you lay off that lending risk. How do you respond to potentials for losses associated with extreme climate events like more severe hurricanes and the like. And so I think there's going to be a real effort to sort of assign values and costs in enforcement context penalties to addressing climate change or failing to do it. That will very much pick up. And of course, as I'm sure Jay talked about in his podcast episode, you already have the SEC forming an enforcement task force yep. on climate risk disclosure, among other things. And so mm-hmm. this is not going away. You have Mark Carney, the former head of the Bank of England, now being a UN special designee. I don't have the terminology quite right for climate. And they're looking at creating a voluntary carbon market. So you will have a price on carbon or a carbon tax. Yeah. That seems to be a next step. And the rural landscape for financial services will play out around that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's no avoiding this. Well, we just recorded a podcast last week, I think, on the European Central Bank and what they're doing in terms of their loan portfolio, and they're investing in green bonds, and they're taking other measures. So this is a very real thing. And thankfully, the firm has people on top of this and people like you that are sensitive to it. I don't know. I don't pretend to have my ear to the ground for everything, but this came up kind of fast for me. You know, I was barely aware of what ESG was, you know, a year and a half ago, and here we are. This is big stuff all of a sudden. So Absolutely. Yeah, yeah David, and Europe, Europe has sort of a, a new disclosure regime around mm-hmm. green investments to address mm-hmm. things like greenwashing, where you say you're yep. virtuous in, in investing in green things and you're really not. So I think there will be a penalty or an enforcement component to this even more so as we go along. And what I do like about the firm is that we sort of have the capability in the major money center jurisdictions to deal with these issues, not only from a regulatory perspective and a regulatory advocacy perspective, but also in sort of doing the actual work of the transactions people are using to respond to these incentives, lending, finance, acquisitions, what have you. But we also have the capacity with our issues and appeals practice and others where it's appropriate and make sense within the law to voice challenges in court because that's that's an important thing to do for clients where the circumstances call for it. Let's switch gears for a second or maybe uh, rewind a little bit. Earlier in this conversation, you mentioned cryptocurrencies, blockchain, mm-hmm. and so forth. Financial technology and innovation is moving forward very quickly. What does an agency like the CFTC do in terms of approaching issues like that? Where are they right now? They're pretty close to the bleeding edge, and I think that was a deliberate choice, and I credit former chairman Christian Carlo for being a thought leader on that, and he continues to be that with his work on the Digital Dollar Project and other things. Under his leadership, the lab CFTC was created, and it really is an open space for innovators to come in Uh and, and talk about ideas they have. Not everything is a derivative. But a lot of things like crypto tokens are commodities, and so you can yeah. write a derivative on it, we regulate it. Mm-hmm. But why it matters, I think, even when we have applications of fintech that are sort of more banking-focused or non-derivative focused, is was put really well by another regulator to us. It was a former acting control of the currency, Brian Brooks. 
He came and spoke with the leadership team at the CFTC. Great, great person, obviously. Real thought leader. He'd been at Coinbase beforehand. And he basically said, you know, crypto is having a role as a currency, a sort of a, a unit of account, a store of value, things like that, will really require it to become less volatile than it is. And one way you can control for volatility in an asset is to have a deep, liquid, regulated set of derivatives markets. And so hmm. even if you have a coin, a currency, a, a blockchain technology that is not itself expressly involved in the derivatives markets, you could probably write a derivative on it. And if we have markets that can smooth out or at least channel the volatility of the price action into a market that's two-sided, mm -hmm. that will be massively helpful to sort of the uptake of crypto for broader applications. I think that's sort of a main monetary, if you will, reason for the CFTC to be focused on it, to sort of help the U.S. continue to lead in financial innovation. And also just to keep abreast of things that are going on that will affect the way trades are booked and cleared and custodied. You can do a lot of that on the blockchain. We're not yeah. there yet, right. but a lot of minds at the agency are focused on that. Sure, sure. You know, it's an interesting time for things like this. And, and the firm has been very involved in blockchain technology the last several years. A bunch of our lawyers got together, did a book. We did a series of videos and podcasts and so forth. And the other theme that kept coming through there was it's a balancing act, right? It's a tightrope. You don't want to stifle innovation, but you also have to regulate enough so that the bad actors are fleshed out and that consumers aren't hurt. And that's always the case, right? But in a new technology, in something so new, when maybe even the people who are living this, eating and sleeping this, they don't know what all the risks are sometimes. It's a fascinating time, I think, to be involved in this sort of financial product, isn't it? It really is. On the enforcement point, you make an excellent observation because I do think it's an old adage, it's tired, I'm sorry, bad facts make bad law. And unfortunately, <laughs> certainly the CFTC has run into some bad facts, but there's got to be a more foot forward way to do it. And I think that's what Lab CFTC is all about. Mm -hmm. Just like the innovation office of the SEC, I would say. And yeah, it is an exciting time. I think that just like 20 years ago, we were using flip phones and still had dial-up. You know, I, I wonder what paying for things looks like 20 years from now. Right. Uh, or knowing where all your assets are will look like 20 years from now. It'll look remarkably different. And I think given, given the way things go, it'll look better and it'll be better for the customer. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're getting close to out of time, Josh, but I want to finish up with a couple of things. We talked about technological innovation in terms of blockchain and so forth, but tech can help with enforcement and rulemaking too. Is the CFTC using technology or data-driven programs to meet its enforcement and regulatory objectives? And how's that playing out? Yes, absolutely. Data are a huge part of the CFTC's programs. And a few salient points on that. One is in the reorganization, we created a new division of data to get a handle on the volume of data that comes through the CFTC and handle it in a more coordinated fashion for a variety of programs, rulemaking, guidance, and I also believe enforcement. Mm -hmm. The enforcement division of the CFTC has market surveillance within it. So when they look in the markets, they look to bring cases based on the data we see. In my own division, the first thing I did when I showed up, I had two full-time equivalents I could hire. I hired two quants, great guys, okay. and I said that I ought to be able to look at a dynamic 
real-time day plus one map of open positions between major asset managers, major consumers of commodities on the one side and their brokers or their dealers on the other side of the market. I think I ought to be color-coded and I think I'll be able to run time sequences. So if I see something, I can pick up the phone and call the bank. Mm -hmm. We made that and we called it real-time access to pooled trading results, R-A-P-T-R, Raptor. Um, Obviously had an enforcement or at least investigation and exams bent. And we were able to do that. They cut through it, and within less than a year, we had that sort of day plus one view of what's going on in the market, which I think just makes us a better better consumer of data and sort of a better user of tax dollars and better able to have intelligent conversations in real time with regulators. I had remarked that if we had that data tool last March and last April, I would have known with a great degree of certainty more about what was going on in oil trading. The price of oil went negative. If you had oil, you had to show up and give someone money to take it from you. That's odd. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We would have known a lot more, at least within my division, of what that meant for the brokers that were doing those trades. Mm -hmm. If we had that tool, and now we do, so heaven help us if we ever need it again, but it's there. It's not only the prevalence of data, but it's the ability to manipulate it. I guess I'll leave this area with one thought. There was actually a case against a major bank that was very data intensive, and this was all reported in the papers. The commission put a pause on the case because they didn't have the tools to analyze the data properly to bring the case, but they knew there was something there. They paused, they put the money in, built the data, built the data tool, extracted the information they needed to support the theory of the case, and they took it to a successful resolution for what I think was close to a record high penalty against that institution. So data and the use of data by regulators is definitely hitting people's pocketbooks. No doubt, no doubt. And you've proven there with that example, it can be effective. That's for certain. That's for certain. Hey, Josh, this has been great. Thanks for your time today. We're talking again soon. And I think that conversation will focus on enforcement actions, which we got into a little bit today, but specifically how the U.S. Department of Justice and the CFTC coordinate and work together. Again, that's a very client-focused topic with a lot of interest, so I'm looking forward to that discussion. Welcome again to Jones Day, though, Josh, but anything else you want to sign off with or let the audience know? Well, Dave, thank you so much for setting this up. I look forward to continuing these conversations. I think the next time we speak, we'll be hearing more from another partner who has a recent DOJ vintage and and background, and we'll talk about parallel proceedings and so forth. I think the ability to talk to clients about that and to help them plan for -hmm. responding to actions that could go parallel, go criminal, if you will, is very important, and we want to be part of the solution if those things happen to our clients. But thank you very much. Look forward to those discussions, Josh, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks again for being here today. All right. Thank you. You can find a complete biography with contact information for Josh at jonesday.com. While you're there, be sure to visit the Financial Markets Practice page and also our Insights page, where you'll find podcasts, white papers, newsletters, commentaries, videos, blogs, and other informative content. Subscribe to Jones Day Talks and Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms. As always, we thank you for listening. I'm Dave Dalton. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.